Today on Block Talk Radio. It couldn't get any, just when he thought it couldn't get any more odd, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid bring the nuclear option to the Hill. Also, not not, who's there? An acquittal. George Zimmerman gets all, nobody else gets that joke. Really? Really? Nobody saw the trial? It wasn't George, funny in the first place. That's true. So George, Zimmerman, George Zimmerman gets off. We're going to talk about that and Reid's relations uh, in the United States. We're also going to talk about what's happening, the latest coming out of Egypt. This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Yep, that's right, folks. Believe it or not, we are back live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us, as they do every Tuesday when we're here, it, it, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello. Welcome back. Oh, so good to be back. Nice and refreshed. Recharge batteries. Montana's beautiful. To his left, he is the former floor chief for Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Well, I might say that uh, it was awfully nice to be in North in uh, in South Dakota and having some nice weather. It was 90 degrees and no humidity. Yeah, I loved it. I'll tell you what, being out in Montana, we'll talk about that here in a second, but Montana was just as beautiful. 92 high, 47 low. Yeah. It was freakish. And directly across the table from me at my 12 o'clock, she is the former She's the former committee general counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is Denise Kreft. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing fantastic. And to my one o'clock, he is the longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce. He has served under at least count four presidents. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Oh, I forgot. He's a very refreshed and generous fellow from the Stimson Center. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the former head of the Democratic Party in the great state of Maryland. He's longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. Hello, Justin. Good to be back. It is good to be back. Folks, we've got so much to talk about. We've got Egypt. We've got the nuclear option. We've got all kinds of stuff. we got crap happening in the Panama Canal that's just unthinkable. But we got to start off with what everybody's talking about, not only here in Washington, but all over the country. It is the uh, the verdict came back in the George Zimmerman trial. For those of you who have not listened to us, not watched the news, basically been living under a rock, uh, George Zimmerman was accused of second-degree murder in Sanford, Florida. Uh, he is accused of murdering 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Uh, he, was, uh, he had been tried on Saturday around 10 p.m. after over 16 hours of deliberation. The jury came back with a not guilty verdict with George Zimmerman. That has subsequently started a whole new realm of talks that are going on. Will he file? Will there be civil charges, or will there be a civil case against him? Will the 
attorney general get involved? We're going to talk about all that, but let's first talk about the verdict and the case itself. Uh, it is it is hard not to have been watching television without seeing news about the Trayvon Mur the Trayvon Martin murder case, the George Zimmerman uh, self defense case. Uh, we've got two attorneys here around the table. I'm going to start with you, Denise. Uh, Denise. A lot of people are now criticizing the state of Florida and the district or the state attorney's office, uh, the special prosecutor that was appointed by Governor Rick Scott to prosecute this case. Uh, there are a lot of people now saying that they went in there with a weak case to begin with and that this was politically pressured to go forward. Do you see any accuracy in that? Well, that sounds like a lot of folks sitting in a armchair doing back, you know, Saturday morning uh, quarterbacks. I'm getting my, you know, sports analogy right. I, to me, I'm not going to call it a weak case. I'm not going to call it a, a political case. But I did have a question, to be honest with you, about the makeup of the jury. It, it was my understanding that they had only six people on that Correct. jury, and those six. I think maybe five out of the six or six. All six were female. All six were female, and the majority of them were white. And, I, I mean, I'm looking at it from the legal standpoint going, okay, legally you can do this, but optically? Why would you set this up this way? I mean, it, it almost it, it raises... Well, we're, we're going to get into that, but let's talk about the case itself. Uh, Bob Hines, not sure how much of the case you saw, but uh, it just seemed that... Uh, a lot of people had said that the, that the state had overreached in trying to go after second-degree murder charges. You had a police department that investigated, and they found no basis to bring charges forward. Uh, that, in their opinion, in the investigation, the evidence substantiated self-defense. The district attorney in Seminole County uh, took the case. He said there were no... Uh, no reason to bring charges forward. It was only after political pressure. But even then, it just seemed that the state was behind the eight ball from the beginning. Do you see that being the case? Well, it was, you know, I, if, if because I was away, I didn't watch nearly as much of this as I might, as I might have. But my, my big thought from the very beginning was that it seemed to me like it was almost like he said, she said. You know, it was a question of there wasn't a lot of evidence. There was a there was a death. How it happened exactly? How it happened is is still probably in a lot of people's minds unclear exactly what happened. But it wasn't a, physically. It wasn't a strong case to begin with. And from that standpoint, uh, I mean, I'm I'm somewhat surprised that um, that uh, the the jury came back as rapidly as they did. Only, only I think sixteen hours. Sixteen hours, which is not a very long time, no. particularly in a case where so much of it was disputed rather than clear cut. So, you know, to me, it was a case that uh, was, was probably very difficult for the for the prosecution to begin with. They didn't have a lot of evidence to go on. There was a lot of discussion and there was a lot of ideas about who was on the bottom and who was on the top and who hit who first or and why it, you know whose whose wound was it and whose voice it was on the on on the cry for help it's it, nobody could decide specifically who it was now that's a exact perfect example of the case itself there just wasn't enough evidence to convict and that you have to have enough evidence to convict when you're talking about a murder trial. But it, 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 seems, it seems to be clear to now that, that it, it, it's almost like Governor Rick Scott was bullied into bringing this case forward. You had a district attorney who uh, who is elected 
uh, by the electorate in the 18th Judicial Circuit uh, down in Seminole County. Uh, a noted, noted prosecutor who could not bring charges forward, didn't see the evidence. It wasn't until Rick Scott appointed a special prosecutor in the state attorney uh, that it, it just seemed like the state of Florida was bullied into this. Is, is that accurate? Well, I don't know whether I'd use the term bullied, but I think that anybody can look at this, and we may be talking more about this later. This is the kind of case that's going to get people excited, and it's going to do that largely along racial lines. And I think some of the people that were most disappointed at at the fact that he was exonerated were the people who brought the pressure to increase the charges beyond that which could be sustained. Uh, had they not done that, it may very well that uh, he, he could have been found guilty of manslaughter. Alan Moore? Yeah, it, it's what a tragedy all the way around here. I mean, you've got you got a young guy, young kid, dead. Never can change that. Just a horrendous loss to family, friends, community, and obviously there's larger implications that we'll get to. George Zimmerman was no big winner here. That guy's going to be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life, um, which is not to say that that, uh, uh, that that he didn't do things wrong too. There were mistakes made all the way around. But what 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 we're reminded of here, watching this, is is how the how the law works and how courts work and what the what the the, the standard of proof is. And you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Of particular activities, and the prosecution was unable to do that. I think that that Al is right that, that uh, it, there was a lot of pressure to 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 bring some kind of charge. The locals looked at the situation and and decided not to bring charges, and that created an uproar, which led to a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on the governor. Otherwise, now he turned it over to a state's attorney, um, who. I was, you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, but I was reading what Alan Dershowitz said, and Alan Dershowitz is a noted uh, uh, defense attorney, uh, teaches at Harvard, um, and he said that this woman, he was very aggressive. It's quite interesting. This woman is known for grandstanding, the woman yes. who brought the charge, known for overcharging, that is, charging for more than what the facts will bear, and then there was other questions of misbehavior, the, of, of, of evidence that was being withheld from the defense that could have exonerated him, prompting Dershowitz to say this woman should be disbarred, that which is, is really a fascinating kind of sidebar, but it speaks to what, what was in the evidence, how the courts work. It, there was a, there was going to be reasonable doubt from the outset, bec or there was going to be doubt from the outset because there was no eyewitness, and there was and only one of the two people involved and, and survived. He, and by by the way, two things: one, you're you're talking about Angela Court, the yes. state, the, yep. the, the specially appointed by Governor Rick Scott. Yep. Um, Angela uh, Angela Corey, uh, she's been she's been in Florida prosecution circles for years. Those are some strong words coming out of Alan Dershowitz. They are, they are, and I, I don't know enough about it, but I was fascinated that, by by his. I've heard uh, similar rumors on. buzzing out of Florida. Denise Krepp. Dershowitz, lovely. He's at Harvard. Great. You're smart. My problem, out of all of this, quite frankly, is that this didn't happen in a vacuum. I, I mean, the South is still very raw. We may have just celebrated 150 years of Gettysburg. 
but racial relations haven't improved. I mean, we, you know, there are two before the decision came out. My daughters and I were at a uh, 4th of July parade where a farmer literally had in his left hand a Confederate flag, in his right hand a U.S. flag, pulling a tractor with a sign on it saying, hug white people, with the sound of Dixie going off. So if, by the way, that wasn't the only Confederate flag I saw over the past two weeks. If you are a black person who lives in the South, do you really think that you are equal if you are looking at a Confederate flag? If you are living in an atmosphere where people, and I asked them the question of, what the hell is going on down here? It was, well, that's just this city. Well, if that's this city, then do you trust the people that are prosecuting in that city? I don't. But you're not talking about you're not talking about rural, you know, North Carolina. You're talking about a very transient, a very diverse population in, in Seminole, Florida? in in Seminole, in Orange County. Absolutely, I come from there. You know, I I, I spent I, you know I spent my high school years there. Still moved up here from that part of Just Florida. When I was in Florida, I, I got to tell you something. Uh, I, it was racially I just, divided. I, 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 I didn't, not in that part. If you had said the Panhandle, yes. If you had said Zephyr Hills, probably. How about Miami? The, uh, Miami? Where I came out. Liber, Liberty City? No, Are I'm you, talking Coconut Grove. Coconut Grove, come on. Coconut Grove is about as diverse and as liberal as it gets down there. Well, come yeah. on. Okay, so. Uh, well, we go to, we, go, we ahead. Go, to, go ahead. We go to Carl Tubin first. Yeah, first of all, I think, <clears throat> I think the uh, prosecution that let the the jury, the, the complexity of the jury be what it was, was, was wrong, number one. Number two, <clears throat> I heard uh, after the trial that Zimmerman um, um, was known to go around taunting African-American children. And, and now why something like that didn't get into the... Because that's hearsay, Carl. That's well, hearsay. Carl. It might not have been and, and, hearsay. It might have been people who... Actually saw it, but there's no there's no there's no court in America that will allow that in this evidence. I have read thousands and thousands of words about this case. I have never heard that. Doesn't mean that somebody didn't say it, but that's clearly yeah. not part of the normal narrative. Now, I want to I want to say that after, something. After yeah, but a lot of you know very little yeah. sort of came out afterwards. Anyway, you know I I want to both agree with Denise and take issues with one thing she said. Nothing's changed in the South. I think a lot of things have changed in the South. I, my, I, my late wife was from South Carolina. I spent a fair amount of time down there with her, and we talked a lot about how things used to be, how things have become. Having said that, I completely agree with you that racism is alive in America, not just in Miami, the Panhandle, the Carolinas, but in Boston, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., well, it is alive. I'm going to talk about that in the next segment because this, this has obviously brought up a much larger discussion of race relations in the United States and how far exactly we've come. We're going to come back in the next segment. But I want to talk about this case right now, though. When you look at this case, you have a, a – first of all, the, the state's case had witnesses – that were just horrible. In fact, a lot of the witnesses that the state called in front of the jury were more helpful to the defense than it was to the prosecution of, of, of Zimmerman. Uh, Bob Hines, you think if, if Rick Scott had to do it all over again, he might have reevaluated this? I have no idea what's in the what was in the governor's mind. But you know, I can understand his problem. 
I mean, the local people didn't want to do something, the local authorities. Uh, the local citizens, a lot of the local citizens wanted something to be done. And then he was in a situation where I think he made the right decision. We've got we've got to have some closure on this matter. We can't just let it stop where it is right now. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's jump in there for a second. When a governor can appoint a special prosecutor to bring charges against a potential defendant, does that not just violate one of the key tenets of our society of, of checks and balances? Now, he didn't he didn't appoint a special prosecutor to make up evidence. He appointed him to take a look at the case and see if there was enough evidence to bring the case to a jury. But this is after an elected district attorney and after a sworn law enforcement team of criminal investigators investigated the case and said there was no evidence to bring charges forward. Now, no, they said there wasn't enough. Now, the point is... What the what the governor was doing was making sure that the final decision nobody could say well it was a local community there was a there was, there's racial problems here we we didn't get a fair trial so what he made sure was you got a full and square deal on the trial all the evidence that could be as, as could be accumulated could be developed on behalf of a a, a serious charge against Mr. Zimmerman was available. To, to the prosecution. If Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, uh, Mark Morial, if they don't show up in Sanford, Florida, does Rick Scott appoint a special prosecutor? You'll have to ask him. I don't know. But it's not a valid question. It's not important. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What pressures it, he felt. It does, no, it does he matter. Felt, he was going to feel pressure yeah. regardless. We've got to feel We've got a phone call. We've got a phone call. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Caller from the 717. You're on with Backroom Politics. Hey, guys. I'm Mike from Pittsburgh. Mike, how are you doing? Good. Hey, um, I, was con- I, I kind of understood these uh, the protest march and everything, but Saturday coming up now could get very interesting. Um, Sharpton's putting together, I guess, 100, 100 different cities here, um, marches together, together. Um, I kind of get the feeling, and, and I'm kind of neutral on this George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin. I kind of think there was fault both ends. It, it was kind of uh, circumstances went wrong. But I'm kind of worried about Sharpton here, you know, getting on TV saying that he doesn't want any violence or anything to come about it, but yet he's organizing these protests after this stuff's starting to break out in L.A. and some of the big cities. It's almost to me like he's saying one thing on TV and really wishing for another to happen on Saturday. Well, I mean, this goes back to my this goes back to my original point. That caller, Mike, thanks a lot for calling in. Um, well, you keep me on. This this goes back to uh, this goes back to a whole other situation where again you've got Al Sharpton who made this a very key point, threatening boycotts in Florida, saying telling everybody saying, look, don't go to Florida, don't go to Seminole County. Because because they're not prosecuting the case, and it seems like it was almost economically driven pressure from the governor's mansion to say, well, we're going to have to bring a case, whether we win or lose, we're going to have to bring a case forward. No. Why? No. Why? For what I said before, you wanted in a case like this, you don't want just to have the local community make the final decision because there's so much heat going on. You bring in an outside prosecutor 
appointed by the governor to find the facts, decide whether there's enough evidence to, to, to bring a, a case against Mr. Zimmerman, and if there is, to do so. But you want to have an outside expert take a look at the evidence and make that decision. What, what, the governor then, then did why, the right thing. Then why elect the district attorney? Then why even have a district attorney? Because in the local community, it would be reasonable for some people to believe that pressure was was going was pushing the, the local prosecution one way or another. This way, they go outside. It's a bunch of outside experts, outside lawyers coming in. The governor appoints them. They have no skin in the game in this case. They're trying to find the facts and what the truth is, and they did as good a job as they could do. And I'm okay with having the protest. I mean, I think that if you can organize the protest and if they are peaceful, then it lets people express themselves. It lets them say, I have an opinion, and it lets them say it in a peaceful but way. Then where is the check and balance? Where is the separation of powers? That Al Sharpton wants to have a No, no. When the, governor, when the governor says, I'm gonna, I want to appoint after... After a after sworn law enforcement, after an entire criminal investigative division in Sanford Police Department says, "Hey, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I you know, we've investigated. There's no, there's no evidence." Because sometimes you have to pull it out of the local hands, and sometimes you have to say exactly what Bob said. You have to have a neutral party because if you don't have a neutral party, people are going to believe you're going to have conspiracy theories and others say. Somebody screwed this up. That's the truth. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. There, I'm guessing there were a lot of locals who breathed a sigh of relief when the governor took this over, given all the noise, all of the threats, all of the protests, all the discussion of boycotts. They were thinking, "Great, turn it over to this person." Now, did 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 the governor? who acted completely and totally inside his authority. This wasn't usurping something in an illegal way. He stepped in. He, it sounds like he may have picked the wrong person to have a look, but I don't know about that. Um, but, but, but by turning it over to this third party, if you will, who had, was a state's attorney, had, had experience and some level of credibility, probably more then than now, um, and she made the decisions on what to charge and how to proceed. That didn't turn out very well for that side of the argument. But if you if you took your argument, or what sounds like your argument, uh, to its logical extreme, you'd say, well, then the Justice Department shouldn't be looking at this either because the state's already decided. Well, the Justice Department's been looking at this thing from the beginning. But the Justice Department, the Justice Department is looking at it from a different aspect. It is, but... It is but, a different angle. Well, it is not... It is not trying to enforce criminal law in Florida. Well, correct, because that's been settled. And Double Jeopardy says nobody else can Agreed. take a look. But, but, you know, Florida is Florida. They've got their own procedures. They have some backup opportunities. The governor stepped in, acting within his authority, appointing this person to bring fresh eyes, take a look, make a judgment, make a recommendation, and we went down that particular road. But I don't find it uh, some... Uh, inappropriate wrong usurpation by the by the governor. It was a way for everybody to buy some time. Now we're back in a in a different place and a difficult place. And uh, with regard to the caller's comments about you know a hundred cities, uh, we'll see what happens. But but like Denise said, this is America. If you want to protest, if they want to protest, that's fine. I, I if, you, no if, you, if you become violent 
uh, if you incite violence, which I don't think Sharpton is doing. No. Um, I'm no big fan of Al Sharpton, mind you, but I don't see him, and I've listened and watched and so on. Um, now, violence is always a possibility if you've got angry people and getting stirred up and who knows what's what's going on, but that's just a chance we take in a, in a free country. But I don't have any problem with 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 with. 10 demonstrations, 50, 100, 200. I don't think any of us have a problem with the demonstrations. What I have a problem with is when when we start succumbing to political pressure to enforce laws that that, that, that are put into place by those elected to create those laws, when we start usurping political pressure into the judicial process, we are taking away a key separation of power. What you're saying is the local people, no matter what, ought to make the final decision. And that is not always the right thing to do. The governor did exactly the right thing. Yep, he I tried disagree. to cut down I on disagree. the emotion. I think you're at gun five to one yes. here, Justin. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I think you're on their side. Uh, I, I just think that this argument uh, is going around for the fourth time. I think everything that's been said was said a long time ago, and I think we should move on. Wow, Al does not like this topic at all. It's finished. It's finished. Okay, well, well, because then we get into a really bigger subject. We got to talk about race relations. I mean, well, there's well, no there, question. There are aspects. There's of the a case that we can still talk. We're about. We're still going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about that in the grander scheme of race well, relations. But I mean, there's been talk about the jury, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, we can talk about and, that. And I think that's an interesting question. Well, and I was, I was interested because some people said, "Gee, six seems small," and it seems small to me. Now, it turns out from some experts on 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 TV that if it's a capital murder case where where a person could, where capital punishment could come to be, then it requires a 12-person jury. But for the long time, the state of Florida has had six-person juries. Um, Both sides, as we all know, when they're setting up the jury, have some, have have, uh, ability to object to particular people. I would hate to think, and here's what I'm really getting to here, um, six women, one was a minority, I would hate to think we have to have some kind of diversity requirement beyond the ability of counsel on both sides to object to particular people that even then we're going to complain about about the makeup of juries. That just bothers me a lot. But, I mean, my, my problem with the makeup of this jury is that it did not reflect the population of the county in which the, the trial occurred. Well, I mean, if you're supposed to be have a jury of your peers, a jury of your peers, as much as I would really love this for us all to be women, it doesn't have that. It needs to be a little bit more. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Denise, Denise, you're an attorney. You, they went through Wadia. They had the opportunity, both defense and, and prosecution had the ability to screen the jurors, and these were six mutually agreed to jurors that sat on this case. And somehow, for some reason, and I hate to say this, I'm betting they were trying to appeal to the mother instinct. The mother instinct it is a very different one than you'll have to the Well, then, 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 that, then that's the state's fault. Yes. Well, yeah, that, I mean, I... That was an issue. It's just... I just I just think trying to second guess what both the state and the defense decided on setting up a jury and after the fact saying, you know, we're not comfortable with the result, therefore we're going to be critical of the whole process that ended up with an all women jury. Right. That that uh, it just it just troubles let, me, let me for us to make those kinds of judgments. Let me let me just say this. I, I, I think look, 
and, and, and we'll talk about this next time because we're coming up at the bottom of the hour. The fact that Trayvon Martin lost his life is a tragedy, absolute tragedy. I think what happened in this case, there is blame to go around for everybody involved in this case, both the Zimmerman and Martin. Uh, it, it, that, that is a given. A 17-year-old boy should not have lost his life in this case, period. He did, it's tragic, and the court has spoken. But I, I do want to talk about some of the other aspects of this case uh, when we come back, and that will bring us into the larger race card issue that we're going to talk about in the second segment. But can I leave one final last, thought? Last, last word. An area where I think we can all probably agree. Neighborhood watch programs where concealed carry of weapons is also present is a very, very dangerous. dangerous not, I, I, I do not, I absolutely do not approve of that. I think that is a that is a mistake waiting to happen. That is an absolute mistake waiting to happen. So when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the Zimmerman verdict, the national implications, and the bigger question is how far have we really come in race relations here in the United States? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Oh, that woman's back of town. 
Oh my, 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 my. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You can call in toll free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Uh, we're continuing uh, coverage of the aftermath of the verdict in the George Zimmerman trial down in Sanford, Florida. Uh, George Zimmerman found not guilty on secondary murder charge and the lesser charge of manslaughter, uh, which has spurred up all kinds of discussions. Uh, Alan, we, we, we left the last segment, and we were going to continue on with the discussion now. We left the last segment with you talking or talking about some of the other different nuances of, of the trial. Uh, the jury, for example, we covered a little bit of the, of the jury, uh, we, we haven't really talked about the tension between the judge and the defense attorney, namely between uh, the judge and uh, and defense attorney West. Yes. And Zon West in in, the, in this issue. Uh, did that strike you as odd? Yeah, it did. Uh, and it, it also reminded me that when we televise these things, we don't always, you know, it's not all positive. Uh, sometimes the way things work uh, it can be very confusing when you get it in drips and drabs. Um, and, the, and, the, and the judge, I don't think West covered himself in glory at different times, nor do I think the judge uh, was always covering herself. I think uh, I, I wanted to say, though, with regard to the, to, the, to, the, to the court case and the charges, you know, we've talked about this notion of overcharging second-degree murder, which just seemed to be a stretch from the outset when you read it. When they, when they added manslaughter at the very end of the trial, after, after George Zimmerman had decided not to testify, which seemed a little bit odd, um, it, it, it turned out when you read that, the penalties for manslaughter when a gun is involved can be up to 30 years, too. Right. And it's, it, 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 and it's not that different, is my, in my reading, uh, from, from second-degree uh, murder in terms of some, the intent of, of the person, of the, of, the, of the perpetrator, if you will, of the shooter. And it made me wonder whether there was some other charge or charges that would have better fit. For example, for example I, was, I was just reading about a case that involves a second-degree manslaughter charge against a woman who was driving and texting and ran into a motorcycle that was part it was stopped at a at a red light killing the driver obviously she was negligent and she contributed and she was careless she didn't set out to kill this kill this guy but she was doing something that in this case i think texting while driving is actually illegal um and second-degree manslaughter is the charge, and they're trying to work something out. And it would seem to me that if there had been a charge that wouldn't lock Zimmerman up for 30 years but might put him away for two or three... Well, there's a problem then, in Florida. Okay. There's a, there's a problem in Florida. Here's why. No, no, fair. I, I'm just... Yeah. I, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I want to address this. The big picture that if there had been some way to penalize... He's, he's penalized for life, there's, don't get me yeah. wrong. But if we could have locked him up for two or three years... He might be better off in the long run because the sentence there's, has been just as There's a problem in Florida because Florida has an odd, it's not odd, it's actually, if you're pro-law enforcement, a very good law. It's 10-20-30 life rule. It's that if you if you use the, a firearm in the commission of a felony, 
it's an automatic 10 years. Whatever they charge you with, they could charge you with jaywalking. It's automatic. Any felony. No, but jaywalking is not a felony. felony. Yeah. They can charge you with any right. felony, and you will do a minimum 10 years, even though the felony charge may not require, it may only require three, minimum 10. If there is injury involved in the use of a firearm, then it's a minimum 20 years. Okay, if there is a death involved, it's 30 years to life. So, regardless of the felony that they brought forward, anything that they would have brought forward would have been 30 to life. And I think that that had, that had to weigh on the jury in when they're charged with this. Now, where I think it got on is when the state came up at the last minute during considering lesser charges, the third degree murder based on child abuse charges. Bob, that just seems like they were just grasping at straws at that time, at that point. A child abuse charge for murder? Well, I suspect it was a desperation effort to make sure they got a conviction. I expect that's what it was. Denise, you agree? Whoever was supervising his attorney, because even though she may have been making the decisions, she was reporting to somebody. Well, she was reporting to the attorney general. My question would be, why didn't you do some of this prep work ahead of time? I mean, if you're a good attorney, you want to game the system out. You want to know where your strongest points, your weakest points are. And if you, you know, it's sort of like playing a chess game. You've got to think five steps ahead. And why are you where you are in this trial, not thinking five steps ahead? It doesn't make any sense to me. But, but Bob. I, You've got to ask the question that when when you see the verdict come down, there's no question. This was a white man who killed a black 17 year old teenager. Can we? <laughs> what? Well, he he went from Hispanic to white Hispanic to now white. I, I didn't just, say Hispanic or white or anything. You, you just said white man. You said a yeah, white man yeah, killed. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't say Hispanic before. No, no, no. But I'm saying that he he's he's half and half. Not unlike Obama, right? Half white, half black. Okay. And and he's half Hispanic. His mom's Peruvian and half white. And then that's, that's a whole side issue. It's a Hispanic man who kills. Is is he? Is how does he? Claim, I mean, then we gotta go back and look at how does he claim himself on a tax form? He identifies himself as Hispanic. Hispanic. He does. Okay, yeah. great for him. Whether it's Hispanic it's or the media white, whether started calling him a white Hispanic. I don't care whether he's a white Hispanic, a purple Hispanic, or a blue Hispanic. The reality is. What, you have you have an adult male who, who killed a 17-year-old teenager, whether he's white or black, tragic. But what's happened now is the media has now inserted race into this issue, which brings me to my next point. Is, but it hasn't inserted race. Race has always been an issue. Why? Okay. Absolutely. You cannot tell me. You cannot tell me that race. You, you don't believe that race that the race card has not been exacerbated by the media. That's a different question. That's a different question. Race was there from the beginning, and yes, it was exacerbated by the okay. The minute, okay. The Fair, event, Fair enough. The minute the event happened, race was in it. Period. If nothing had happened except, you know, they took they, they slugged each other, race might have been part of it because one of them is white and the other one is black. If the murdered Ow. person was black. You can be any other race and you have the same property here. Right. So let's move on. Al's is really not like this conversation. <laughs> but I mean, it's got to be talked about. I mean, the reality still dictates is that you we now have a question of was this racial profiling? Was this a racial card that was played in the jury? 
was this does this now demonstrate that we are not as far along in race relations as we were 20 years ago? Al, go ahead, Congressman Al. I've been waiting for this part of the conversation. We are a lot farther than some people think, and we are not as far as we should be. And I find Shelley's to be a very interesting little microcosm of, of the positive side of that. If you come into Shelley's at almost any time, about a third of the patrons are black. Shelley's is not a cheap place to drink. You know, it's not a tawdry bar. It's a it's a classy bar, and uh, you, you have to you have to have a certain amount of income to come here. If you sit down, and I've sat down with dozens of them of the the black patrons here and struck up conversations and what have you, you will almost, at some point, you will get to where he says, well, my dad used to tell me, my dad always said, you know, these people came from workable families, they went to college, they've got good jobs, and they uh, are not part of any problem. The, 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 it's 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 southeast where you don't have any fathers or where there every every child in the family has a different father that kind of thing. So there's still problems within the black community that they can solve uh, with with education with education. Denise Crap. Well, well, oh, wait, well, wait, okay. wait, wait a minute. I haven't said anything all all day. <clears throat> I think that that uh, this occurred that, that the level of racism in the country is because there aren't enough whites who know enough educated blacks to be able to distinguish. I think they still down in their hearts will say I'm not prejudiced but what they think of black people is decidedly different than you will find among the black people here in, 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 in Shelton. And that is inherently Racism, and that is what is still hanging around. The fact he had a hoodie played against him in the white mind, and other things like that. But, so sure, there was racism involved in this. But, but Al, I, I want to say this right now: there are some that would consider what you just said racist. The in fact, what, what the fact that you said yeah, I talk to black patrons, not just patrons. There are people that would sit there that would say, "What you know?" Discerning, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not belittling you. I'm just saying. To make my point, I couldn't. I had to say they were black patrons because I was making a point about what they were saying. Their father told them. I agree with you, Al. But I'm just what I'm saying, and I'm saying this just for the broader discussion. Is there are people that would have considered what you said racist? Uh, There are people that said, "Why do you have to differentiate?" I don't think if you I don't think if you talk about race in this society today you can avoid being called a racist by somebody. Denise Crap. Just um, when I went to high school in North Carolina, we had uh, we just returned from Germany. My, my parents were in the military at the time, and uh, went to a high school that was 50% black and 50% white. So this is 20 years ago. My classes, however, were 98% white. This is a statistical anomaly. Except for the fact when you realize that I was with the white kids because the white kids were considered smart and the African American kids were not as considered smart as we were. So, and that was going on not only in high school, but that was starting out in the elementary school. So, if you've got a 40 year old like me, and they're now the mayors or, in the case of, you know, the new Secretary of Transportation who grew up the same system that I did, if that's what you grew up in, 
you know, and you were the ones making the decisions. That's what some of the decision makers look like now in the South. And until we get people to integrate in school levels, you're going to have this consistency of racism keep perpetuating. Denise, I think I think that that is a gross generalization. I think that is a horrible generalization. Justin, when I, I've been, I've the been in, called Oreos is ridiculous. I, I, I have been in the deepest, darkest, most redneck part of Georgia, Florida. I've also been in some of the most progressive areas, Boston, for example. You want to talk about segregation? Boston takes pride on its segregation. You go into Dorchester, they don't want they don't want segregated schools. They fight against segregated schools. And Boston is considered a progressive city. You know city. what, Justin? I believe that, except for the fact that on July 4th, I watched the guy with the Confederate flag in his left hand and American flag with his right you're hand. Gonna that. You're going to you're gonna find that. You're going to find that. I think that's a gross generalization. I, I honestly do. I, I think that you are not giving the progression. Are we by are we by any means complete in you know at a point where we can just not have to talk about it because it's a non-issue? No. But are we where we were back in 62? Not even close. No, we're not calling African-Americans boys. What we're just doing is we're not letting them into our garden clubs. We're not letting them into our schools. We're not letting them into different things that we want to do because the older generation, that one I love, is going to be upset. I, I, I find that a gross generalization, Bob Lines. Well, I can't. Wait a minute. <clears throat> a generalization, uh, perhaps, gross generalization is idiotic. Uh, it, it, it it is a generalization that I think holds true as a generalization. If you want to take every single instance and deal with it separately, fine. But as a whole, what she says is correct. Now let me tell you how how it affects white minds. Mind in an instance. I took my great grandson to his daycare center. My gracious, there were lots of little black kids running around. I happen to know what they're paying for that because I'm paying the bill on it. And it's like $1,000 a month. And I, I said, do they have a subsidy here for poor children? And they said, no, 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 no. There's a large professional black community over there, lawyers, doctors, what have you, and these are their kids. My assumption was they had to be poor to be there. What? That is But why, would, why did you racism. make that, what, that? You're claiming racism? Well, doesn't that make you happy? About, he's no, acknowledging happy. some of his own tendencies, which and, are a product of a lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not proud of that, but I think it's right. a point that... that that's valid. Lots and lots of white people. Give me an, I'll give you another example. I learned at my mother's knee that black people were equal to me. I don't know where she got it. She grew up in Colorado. She didn't know any black people. I, I was just taught that. Then I went to school, particularly about junior high school, and I found it wasn't true. Well, now, I didn't understand that they, you know, they were all down living in converted World War II housing for the poor. There probably wasn't a book in the home. Who knows if there was a father? I didn't understand all of those sociological aspects. It wasn't until the 10th grade when the professor, we were studying Julius Caesar, and the, and the teacher wanted a debate between somebody who would defend Mark Antony and somebody who would defend Brutus. Well, I've always liked the more intellectual side of things, so I volunteered to protect Brutus. Mistake. It was a black girl, whom I never got to know well, 
who volunteered to represent Caesar, Caesar, not Caesar, I said it wrong earlier. Well, she wiped up the floor with me. I mean, she cleaned my clock, you know, and I remember sitting there saying, oh, that's what my mother was talking about, you know. And then I began at that point in my life to meet educated black people and found that they were not very different from me in any significant way. Too few white people have had opportunities like that, in my judgment, and that is the reason it is so hard to wring racism out of our society. And, and uh, notwithstanding that lifetime of experience at your mother's knee and in school, you still acknowledge, and I credit you for acknowledging something that a lot of us have in a in a passive way but wouldn't really want to acknowledge your reaction when you went to your grandchildren's daycare center. You know, one of the things that that strikes me on the bigger, the the larger implications of all of this is that there's this pent-up anger among many African Americans, and whether there were those wealthy enough to hang out here and buy expensive liquor and cigars and take their kids to expensive daycare, or just middle class or lower middle class African Americans is they are all deeply resentful of a world they live in in which they have to give special instruction and guidance to their male children in particular about what to do when they go out in public, how to dress, how to act, where to go, what to do if confronted by police or other authority figures, never to run, always to be polite, and they, 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 they teach them that because they know that those kids are at risk, that the world tends to look at them with suspicion. Um, if they look a certain way and if they carry themselves a certain way and if they're a certain age, it's, it's, that might be a criminal, that might be somebody who can harm me, and these parents have to drum it into their kids that they that they live in a world where that happens. That saddens me. It saddens me a lot, but it's the world we live in. And that was at play, I believe, that night in Sanford, Florida, where Zimmerman looks at this kid, he looks out of place, the way he's dressed and carries himself, and Zimmerman is going to track him. He's on the phone. He's not going to. He's not trying to go kill him. He's on the phone. He's trying to get the police to come. Trying to get the police to come. Trying to get the police to come. And the police are saying, "Yeah, we're coming. We're coming. You don't need to follow." Him. Um, and and he's got it in his mind that he's going to be a policeman and he knows how to handle this. At one point, he gets out of his vehicle and a confrontation occurs and we don't know who did what to whom except that we know that Zimmerman shot Trayvon. But but that world that, that that black Americans live in and that black parents live in with regard to their ch- children just <coughs> saddens me. It's, it's something we have to work on so much. And there is a lot of racism that, that feeds it. But there's also facts. Black kids are six times as likely as, as, as whites to, to be convicted of crimes. 
there would Richard Cohen wrote a column today that that twenty five percent of uh, New York City uh, young people are African American. They commit eighty percent, seventy eight percent of of gun violence. So we need to acknowledge the facts, even as we need to acknowledge there's a problem. So it's you know we don't we 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 have to understand that some of our reactions have a factual basis, even if we hate it hate that fact. Okay, and. I, I got to jump in. Carl Dubin first. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 Carl, Carl, go ahead. You've been waiting. I was, I was just waiting. watching uh, Eric Holder just spoke at, uh, probably still was speaking at the NAACP. convention, and he said that he, he, he even had to go to his son and talk to him about the same things that, that you've been talking about. And he, he also mentioned that he's been racially profiled since being attorney general. That his car was searched uh, uh, with him standing there. Uh, he also called for. What was his driver doing at the time? <laughs> yeah, that's my question. <laughs> smoking smoking pot. But he also called, and I think the president alluded to this, is, is that we really need a national conversation about all of this and, and to try to, to, to see what can be done in situations like this. Um, unfortunately, I heard on the radio um, coming down here that uh, eight African-American boys beat up a, a fellow who was a Spanish-American. And, and, and that, hopefully, that can, can be, hopefully it can subside and not to break out to anything more. But it's, we're very, we're very on very shaky ground here. Let me let me jump in on this, and and, and maybe 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 I lived a charmed life. Maybe I've lived in a, in a in a in a secluded world, in a naive world, where you know what? It, I make no bones about the fact that a majority of my friends, from particularly here in Shelves, uh, are African American. I I am in in numerous numerous times here in Shelves. The only white guy sitting at a table with all with all African Americans—they're all black. Uh, I don't look at them as black. I don't look at them as African American. Uh, maybe that's naive in my world. But when I talk to other white Americans, particularly those from middle class, I find—and maybe I've just been lucky—that there is a there is a sense of we've gotten more colorblind than when we were 40 years ago. Is it changed completely? No. But when I hear that, uh, you know, that, that race is still the major, major problem. And again, I'm white. I'm a white middle class male. You know, have I, do I, do I, do, am I, do I experience prejudice? You know what? I do experience prejudice. I'm six foot three fifty. I'm I get prejudice all the time for my size. Am I self aware of it? Yes. Do I make a big deal about it? No. That makes them that makes the person who says that thing ignorant to me. So I mean, well, I'm the one I, that has been made the bad joke. So no, 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 no. I'm not talking about you. I'm, no, I'm talking about people that that have been that have been malicious about it. There are people that are malicious about somebody of, of size. Hey, you know what? I'm very self aware of it. 
I, I get it. I just look at that person as ignorant. What I don't see is, and I take full personal responsibility for me being my size. Now, a black person can't take personal responsibility for who they're born, but what we do see is, you know, there's a, there's a certain inherent personal responsibility that if you're confronted by somebody as a neighborhood watch, walk away. Trayvon Martin had four minutes to walk away as evidence brought forward in court. He did not. He, he chose. Zimmerman had the choice to observe and let the police handle it. They're trained to do that. He chose not to. The discussion that has not come up in any of this is the personal responsibility of walking away. And that has not once come up in this discussion. You will find if you just turn an eye and say, you know what, you're just ignorant, I'm walking away. This solves a lot of problems. But we don't talk about personal responsibility in this. Why is that not part of the discussion? Uh, I'll take personal responsibility. And you know what, sometimes you do have to walk away. But sometimes you actually have to stand up for others that don't look like you. I, I mean, like you, I'm white. But, you know, I had a really interesting um, incident happen in my mother's house about 10 years ago. My godmother is Mexican. And uh, my mother had a party. My godmother was there. My mother's friends showed up. They thought my godmother was the maid. Do you know how embarrassing that is to have your godmother, people to assume that your godmother is the maid because she's Mexican? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But that person's ignorant. No. These that are person fluent, rich, doesn't make them not women. ignorant. Yeah, you're right. It but doesn't make them not stupid. Right. That was 10 years ago. Now, what we do is we just keep seeing continued ignorance. And at some point, you have to say, when do we change the ignorance? When do we say, this is not right, not only not right, but it's not right for my kids to think this? Congressman Al. And I think that we really need to redouble efforts to bring decent education to Southeast or wherever it's needed. Uh, I think education and full stomachs and, and this is something that maybe the Endables ACP and other similar organizations could help with, but holding black families together, uh, those kinds of things that were the difference between the kids that I thought weren't as good as me and the young woman who, who swept up the floor with me later. Yeah, I can guarantee you her house had books and had discussions at dinner and all of that kind of stuff. Until you, it is, I believe that there is a responsibility of the black community to help itself, and I don't know exactly how one does that. But when Bill Cosby says stuff like that, he's chastised by, his own, by, by people of similar color. Yes, because in the black community, there is also a kind of mindset that I think needs adjustment, just as there are mindsets in the white community that need adjustment. And I was just suggesting one of the adjustments. Carl Tubin. Yeah, you know, as much as I hate to say this, is there's a lot of African Americans of my age and, and 20 years younger who, who thought that when the civil rights thing came, it was going to free them to do a whole lot of things and they would be able to progress and make money and do all kinds of things. And they're frustrated because they have it. And a lot of these people, I, I believe, you know, kind of say to their children, watch out. Uh, this isn't the world that we thought it was going to be, and watch out. And I think it's going to take another 50 years before everyone is educated enough, before integration really, which, is, which has helped a lot, 
Well, before integration really uh, gives us the promise of a nation that is one people. I think an, the ideal was something that my four-year-old granddaughter said when uh, her her uh, when she was with a black guy that was a good friend of hers took him out playing golf and whatever. He was an adult, and. Somewhere along the conversation, somebody said uh, that this guy was black. And she said, he is not black. He's brown. Well, she she was telling the truth as she saw it, and, and there, was, there was no racism involved. She was too young to have been inculcated right. with that yet. Alan Moore, I'm going to give you the last word. Okay, a little... This is a only... Very, very indirectly related little funny story, okay, that I was reminded of when, when Denise was talking about about the situation in, in her home. It's, it has to do with Lee Trevino. Now, Lee Trevino, for anybody who doesn't know, is Mexican-American. He was one of the country's great Raised golfers. Golf. Grew up in Texas. Uh, Got struck uh, by lightning in Chicago. He, he, uh, but he won. He, he, he played against uh, Nicholas and Palmer, won some majors, and, and is one of the funniest guys ever. He tells a story on himself. He became wealthy, and he lived in a big home in, uh, in the Dallas suburbs. And he was out mowing his lawn one day, and a lady in a Cadillac drove up, rolled down her window, and said, uh, Excuse me, how much do you charge to mow lawns? And he looked at her and thought for a minute, and he said, Well, the lady that lives in this house lets me sleep with her. <laughs> That is a great story. And the lady drove off. That is a great, great story. That is a terrific story. Uh, when, when, when we come back, I mean, this is obviously something that's not going to go away. And, and we can continue the discussion. We'll talk about it over the break. Uh, when we come back, we may still talk about this, or we may go on to other things like the nuclear option with Harry Reid, which apparently may have been diverted, but uh, maybe not. Uh, we'll talk about that and, and more of the Zimmerman coverage when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
more time. because I think cooler heads have prevailed on this. Two, Reid talks about invoking the nuclear option, but if you know anything about Senate rules, it's not at all clear how it would work. In times past, they've talked about trying to change the rules at the very beginning of the session. That was what was talked about, uh, changing the the filibuster rules more broadly. Um, In... Once you're in the middle of a session, it seems pretty, it's always seemed pretty clear to me and people who know more than I know that it takes two thirds of the members to change the rules. So, in effect, what, what Reed was somehow proposing, and, and people like 
retiring Democrat Carl Levin of Michigan, very well-respected guy, is I think we should change the rules, but not by just breaking the rules. He said, I think we should find a way to get the 67 votes, change the rules so that uh, that nominees to executive-level appointments would be assured of a vote in a reasonable period of time. I think there are Republicans that would that would agree with that. Certainly, in times past, they've they've talked about it. What's not at play right now is lifetime, i.e., judicial appointees, um, or changes in legislation. So. I think what we've got here is a deal that gets us through this particular point in time um, and hopefully conversations on the side. And maybe this particular part of the rule does get changed. But, but Congressman Al, just when we think that there might be light at the end of the tunnel in the political rhetoric coming out of Congress, namely the Senate agreeing on immigration, putting a bill forward to the House, just when we think there might be some hope, they take 10 steps back and then shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, the, the, the political rhetoric putting out, being put out by both the Reed and the McConnell camps are serious business. Why is this such a big deal, and why is this nuclear option? Well, the nuclear option is because both parties have taken turns when they were in the majority of blocking uh, a number of things from an administration of the other party, particularly appointments to various offices. And appointments to the administration. Judicial appointments, which I, I understand isn't covered by this possible agreement, and, and we're in desperate need of filling a whole bunch of judgeships. Uh, so so it's like the two parties, when, when, when they change the majority, they, they hand, as they walk, as they change offices and they walk from one side to the other side, they hand each other their their playbooks so that the Democrats will do exactly what the Republicans had been doing when they were in the majority. And vice versa. It's ridiculous. And I think that, that it is the filibuster itself that is the criminal. I think the Senate is the least democratic democratic institution on the face of the earth. And I think the, the uh, filibuster should be abolished. Short of that, I could live with it if they'd go back to the days when if you were going to filibuster, you had to hold the floor <clears throat> until you fell down or somebody else would, would relieve you because you could have a few people filibustering. But they ended. I mean, a filibuster always came to an end and the majority could work its will. But I have no problem protecting the rights of the minority, and if the filibuster is the way to do it, fine, but don't make it so that it becomes a veto in the hands of the minority. But Bob Hines, what we're, we've got two serious situations here. You're talking about, one, the cherished filibuster rule in the Senate, and two, the ability of the president to put into place who he wants in his administration. Both very, very sensitive issues, but it seems like there's a lot of flip-flopping going on. We saw it with, with the Bush administration when Republicans in the Senate said, let the president put in place who he wants, and the Democrats would filibuster. The Senate does not want to give up the filibuster, but there's no way they're taking away the ability of the president to nominate who he wants. Well, the president 
absolutely has a right to pick the executives that he wants to run the different departments and agencies, et cetera. And that's what they're trying to deal with right now. And I think Alan laid, the, the, laid it out very clearly at what's going on. I think. Alan Moore. Yeah. yeah. Let's remember that the Constitution says the president shall bring forward names with the advice and consent of the Senate. So it's the Constitution that brings the Senate into the picture. If, if, if that weren't true or if we really wanted to change that and give the president his or her people, then we can change the Constitution and remove the Senate entirely from the picture. But, but the Senate is not a rubber stamp. That's a, good, that's a good idea. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, and good then, luck it, with that. And, and that's fine. And we, you know, I don't. <laughs> I, I want to respect what Al said earlier about about not wanting to to beat the same horse over and over. We can talk about the filibuster writ large if we want to. You guys know where I'm coming from. I have a different view than Al. I don't think it's nearly as harmful as he does. Although it clearly is being abused more and more and more with regard to making people stand up and talk, that is within the power of the majority leader. But Alan, Alan Moore, you have, you've been around the Senate for many, many, many years. Yep. The filibuster has been the right of passage in the Senate, a tool to be used as part of the political process. The Senate refuses to give it up. They threaten to, but they refuse to give it up. Why are they so steadfast about giving up the filibuster? Well, they, the, the filibuster exists in order to protect minority rights. There are various supermajorities that are required in our Constitution. It takes two-thirds of the members of the Senate to ratify treaties. The Constitution is filled with language that Congress shall pass no law, it's, which means... If you want to pass a law in particular areas, you've got to change the Constitution, which means three-quarters three of the states have to ratify it. So, you know, it's not like this notion of protecting minority rights is somehow new and different. Having said that, it is absolutely true, as Al, as Al says, that the use of the filibuster has become more and more routine, and, it, and, it's, and it's people have found new ways, both parties, to figure out how to take advantage of of the filibuster to delay and delay and delay things they don't like. It clearly is ripe for reform. And at the beginning of this Congress, you may remember, a deal was struck between Reed and McConnell on ways to bring up bills that uh, if, when, when there is resistance by the Republicans. It was creative. It was a major important change because what's, what was happening is what everybody blames the, the minority for filibustering. What the what the majority was increasingly doing was calling up a bill and setting it up in a way so you didn't have open debate or the ability to amend. A lot like the way the House works, which is a big problem in the House. So it, it's no wonder that everybody in the Republican Party, from from the the farthest left to the farthest right in that party. And there were people, there are a few people still to the to the to the middle or left of center who said, I don't like the way the majority is trampling on our ability and giving us no chance at all to amend. So, so there's that those 
there's some ability now for that to occur. Then he's crap. When you ask the question of why does the Senate want to protect you, I think one of the reasons is because the Senate has flip-flopped between the Democrats and the Republicans more often than the, than the House. I mean, the, the House flipped, well, flipped in the 1900s three, four times? That's all. That's it. Whereas, it, oh my, <laughs> a maybe dozen times a dozen Senate. times in the Senate. So they know, in regards to the Democrats and the Republicans, that they need the filibusters. So that institutional history is there, so they're going to want to protect the filibuster. Now, the question is going to be, if you can change it from the legal perspective, boy, would I love to see a, a lawsuit on that one, because I would love to see the judicial system try to decide whether or not, if Reed was to do this, if he could change the rules in the middle of a session. Usually, it, again, it has to happen at the beginning, and if you do it in the middle, what would the judge say? Purely hypothetical, but... But, but Bob, when we, when we talk about the filibuster right now, and Alan, I'll get back to you. When we talk about the filibuster right now, you know, Alan brings up a good point when he talks is the Senate is constitutionally bound to advise consent. But at what point does it stop? Become, at what point does advise consent and hindering the president's ability to govern intersect? Well, it's... Well, the, con the way the Constitution set things up, and I, I don't recall, I, I think it was, I'm not sure which founding father said it, but, you know, the view was the House is a hotbed, and it's a cup, and it's the saucer, which is the Senate, which is to cool things down and make sure that things happen and move forward. And, and we, need, we need to remind ourselves that the Constitution, the basic law and the statute of this land, is, it's, a, it's probably the most uh, perceptive and intelligent statement of how to run a government, maybe in the history of man. Now, that said, we live in a time right now where we, you know, we, we have, for reasons that we have often talked around here with redistricting and other things, we push, we push the, the, the political structure away from moving toward the center to moving toward the left and the right. And that makes it more difficult for our system to work as smoothly as it should. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think that I want to see the filibuster rule disappear. I would also like to see something that, that Al said. It would be nice if you're going to filibuster that you had to stand up and talk. I think that's that would be if we go back to kind of like the Democratic senator in Texas did for 12 hours. That's exactly down. right. The idea is to use it the way it ought to be used. It ought to be used to be a tool for the minority to to, to do everything they can. And let's face it, while somebody is up talking, there's a whole bunch of people in the in the cloakrooms trying to figure out a deal to make it something go forward. And I'm sure Alan has seen that more times than most of us. Right, have. Alan Moore. Well, as I said before. The majority leader can force people to talk anytime he wants to, totally within the power of the majority leader. Why don't they do that every time? Because they know that they look like idiots in, in, the, in the public eye, but it's within their power. So, so it's not as though you can't do it. You can do it, and it's up to the majority leader to... To, uh, to that implies they don't look like idiots already. <laughs> well, <laughs> not in their minds. Wow. Yes. Who loves the Senate? Senators. Senators. Yeah, true. Denise Krupp. Well, here's just an inside baseball question. You know, the deal that you were talking about that they may have struck was going to deal with EPA, the debt administrator, 
as well as Secretary of Labor. As well as Consumer uh, Protection right. and CPA. But on last Friday, Napolitano announced a resignation. So does that deal cover the, the new Secretary of Homeland Security? Well, that, that, we haven't even talked about that. Thanks for blowing my thanks for blowing my tell me a story. But uh, well, you haven't. I still got the story. You're a little late. Yeah, I think that. No, 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 I got that. No, 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 I got that. Let me finish. So what, what I was going to say, and this Jesus. speaks to Denise's point, you know, there's something like 1,650 presidential appointees that have nominations that have come forward and they've been blessed and it's happened. There's five that are at issue right now. I think it's five, but it's it's a handful, and it's and, and it's frustrating. EPA, that's a legitimate cabinet level one that deserves, you know, to be dealt with. And the Secretary of Labor is one that deserves to be dealt with. The problem there is 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 with with labor. There's a lot of people who don't like the nominee. Well, you're also talking about There's the national relations, the national labor relations board. Just a minute. Board. Just a minute. Let me just. In, in I think we need of, an anti-filibuster amendment here. In the, in, <laughs> in the case of labor, Al doesn't like facts. You know what? What can I say? So the NL, the 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 secretary of labor. There's some people who just don't like him for for what he's is, is passed. There's some different issues with EPA, more the the, the role of EPA. Then there's this guy Cordray, who's the, with the consumer. CPEFA. Yeah. And 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 three appointees to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Those four people are currently serving. It's not like the president doesn't have his people. Well, they were recess appointments. They're, they're currently serving. They're under recess appointments that a court of appeals judge said were done illegally. So they're out there in this funny never-never land, and the president's trying to get them legitimately confirmed, and the Republicans are saying, wait till the Supreme Court decides, because they're going to take this case up. So it's only a little handful here, and something has prompted Reed, and it's probably pressure from his guys, and the Republicans have said, we don't want to blow up the, the Senate right now over these five people. John McCain's been involved, and they work something out. It's, okay, we'll, we'll, get, we'll have your votes on Cordry, who's been serving now for quite a long time, and 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 the the two cabinet level appointees. With regard to the NLRB, we'll take one. You need to come up with two new names. That's the deal that's in play, and apparently that's going to occur. I don't think they're going to have a problem with with Homeland Security as long as they come up with a they know, come up with a, the right they name. Come up with a legitimate candidate. I mean, cabinet members are very rarely delayed. And certainly not the highest level. When you get to the second echelon, they, second, they second confirm term, box relatively quickly as transportation. You know, they, you know, even people with with issues and problems. You know, Mrs. Uh, uh, Mrs. Pritzker uh, at Commerce. She she went was confirmed like 96 to one, and she's the one who had the little 80 million dollar shortfall in in reporting her income. Yes. But when you're a multi billionaire, I guess. People well, look say, what they did. Well, look what they did uh, with Chuck I mean, Chuck Hagel was a prime example of, you know, that was supposed to be a huge filibuster. That went through relatively, you know, it relatively unscathed. Yeah, this is a little bit of an of, of an artificial uh, nuclear con option construct here. No, 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 just uh, crisis. And I think that, you know, but the yeah, but we need something to talk we're about. convinced that, that Reed was, was serious in all this nuclear option talk. They both 
you know, shot shots across each other's bow, and it's no big surprise. Yeah, it's come to a, an agreement. There's a whole other battle between McConnell and Breed now, anyway, because of the political situation in uh, in Kentucky, and uh, whether Putin, I mean, you know, Reed has had his people put ads down about McConnell. So I think some of this ads gets into. Do you think Mitch McConnell's taking this a little personally? Well, or what he, I think he's suggesting that the Democrats are seeing a possible way to paint McConnell as an obstructionist over this issue, which is not that big an issue, frankly. Right. Um, and why not? If you can, if you can damage him at home by getting some national press coverage, go for it. Well, we'll we'll see how the uh, Senate is apparently going to vote sometime today. Apparently. Yeah. On Cordray, which would set the precedence for no, the no, vote. they've already voted to go ahead and have the vote. Yeah, have the vote. And then, okay. So, so they voted seventy-one to something to move, to forward, move forward, have the right. vote, and I think the, the, the vote will vote be within eight hours of eleven o'clock or, right. or whatever it was. Right. So, so they should be voting today. today. Correct. They so should. I was right. My facts were correct. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for kind of, thank you for fact checking that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie, our international. Pundit, join us. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the the events that happened over the past two weeks in Egypt. Was it a coup, or was it, in fact, a way to stabilize the Egyptian government? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., being the place to be, America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change uh, gears right now. We're going to talk about the latest happening. Well, not the latest, the interesting events that took place while we were on vacation. Uh, in case you didn't see it, uh, Egyptian President Morsi was removed from power by the military commission in Egypt, and a temporary uh, a temporary uh, president has been put into place awaiting new legislative and uh, constitutional elections in Egypt. Joining us now is Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph uh, is the Vice President of Eurasia Affairs at the Eurasia Center. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with everyone. Ralph, uh, in- interesting take what happened in Egypt. Morrissey, who a lot of people say was the rightfully elected president, uh, elected by the populace uh, to sit in that office, was removed. Sure. Uh, this puts uh, the future of the Egyptian government in, in a state of collapse. Well, what's interesting is back in November, Morsi came out and said his decrees were not subject to judicial review. So that got many young people in Egypt very worried. Uh, They went around and secured something like 22 million signatures on a vote of no confidence uh, of Morsi's government prior to the the, uh, protests at the end end of June, uh, June 30th. So, so when we when we when we look at the military committee, I mean, and, and from what we're gathering through international media sources, it seems that the the removal of Morsi was largely supported by the people in Egypt. That it was just the Muslim Brotherhood faction that were taking issue with the removal because he had instituted what a lot of seemed yeah. were a Sharia right. law based regime coming into play. Yeah, and I think that's an accurate assessment. Um, because uh, when the elections initially occurred, the Muslim Brotherhood won, not just because the opposition was divided, but because they had been actively engaged in in the community. And people figured the Muslim Brotherhood um, was the party that represented their interests. Well, come to find that when Morsi got into power, he started moving the country more in the direction of becoming a radical Islamic fundamentalist state. And this is what we're seeing in Turkey. This is why you had the protests of Taksim Square, where I was uh, uh, two months ago. So when 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 we when we look at at Egypt now, it, it was also noted that Morsi was not charged formally right. by the Egyptian judicial system. He was in fact taken into what the Egyptian government now is calling protective custody at the uh, at the headquarters of the Republican Guard. Uh, but he's still kind of under house arrest, but not formally charged with anything. How long before they release him? And, and if they do release him, is he going to be a threat to any future government in Egypt? Well, the problem right now is there's still, you have these ongoing protests. Something like seven people were killed yesterday, 260 wounded. You have uh, Deputy Secretary of State, uh, William Burns, uh, trying to mediate and encouraging both sides to come to a common solution. But what's interesting is neither the Muslim Brotherhood, nor the uh, Sophie Party, nor the um, the uh, Young Democratic Movement uh, representatives want to wants to meet with uh, Secretary of State Burns. So I think what's going to have to happen is the government, military government, is going to have to move as quickly as they can to establishing a mechanism for a new election. The longer this runs, the more likely it becomes the Muslim Brotherhood. Denise Krupp, when this originally went down, it was kind of odd that uh, neither the President or the Secretary of State, John Kerry, 
or anybody down at uh, Foggy Bottom uh, State Department headquarters called what happened a coup. Whereas you had a lot of people in the Middle East saying this is exactly what it was. Why hold off on calling it a coup and why is that such a big deal to Morsi supporters in Egypt? Well, uh, you know, as Ralph was, was, was talking, that, you know, what's going on in Egypt is happening in other places in the Middle East, you know, Turkey being one of the big places. So you've got a whole lot of countries that are being upended. But for us right now, Egypt is very sensitive because of the Suez Canal. We want to make sure that the Suez Canal keeps running. And we also need to make sure that we have the ability to keep talking with folks. Because quite frankly, I don't think I know who's in charge. I, I think there's a lot of topsy-turvy, and until we get a better idea, we're not going to you know, make a, a strong stand that we're going to have we may later uh, regret. Bob Hines? The United States uh, has a statute that says that they do not, uh, you know, if, if a democratically elected uh, government is overthrown, there's no money going to that country. So the president of the United States cannot admit that we've just had a coup in Egypt. Because that uh, would take away the forty-one would, billion dollars that, that would we mean submit that over. The one point three billion dollars that we give Egypt every right. year would disappear. And obviously, while that a lot of it goes to the military for them for their for their purposes, it is also valuable in a, a lot of other places. So they can't. So the United States does not say it's a coup. The fact of the matter is, it looks like a coup. It stands up like a coup. It sits down like a coup, and it sounds like a coup. So you think it's a duck? No, I know it's a coup, oh, okay. but he can't say it. <laughs> it is clearly a coup, and he can't say it. And, and for the problem for, for the president is that he wants to be able to support, as I think I've heard say by, by Ralph, as, as rapidly as possible we have an election in Egypt so that there can be a government there, and once there's a government there, then, the money, then they can continue to support you know, the, 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 Egyptian. The, the Egyptian people who are who are running a, a new government. Hopefully, the military can step back and the money can continue to flow. Carl Tubin. You also have the, have the prospect that if 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 the American money doesn't go there, that the the, the Egyptians country could fall because of several uh, economic problems. There's also the treaty between uh, Israel and Egypt. And if, if we don't give them money, if we don't do the things that we're doing, that also could fall apart and would make a big difference in the Middle East. Um, Bob is exactly right about U.S. law, and this has uh, created this very awkward situation for the administration. If they call it a coup, then the law automatically goes into effect that because the law is pretty clear that, that if a coup against the democratic government immediately stops all foreign aid. So what you need and what's going on right now is that the administration and people on the Hill are discussing a way out of this. What the administration would like to do is call this duck a duck, call this coup a coup, and then let the Congress come in and do a legislative solution. Now, getting this Congress to agree to something and, and, and being they can't even agree what they want for lunch. Being being confident that it will happen is no small challenge. So the administration is looking rather stupid, but they have a purpose for it, and that is because they want to keep the aid going for the reasons Carl mentions. 
Um, but what they'd really like to do is go ahead and be able to call it a coup, but then do a legislative fix that says, in this case, exactly. notwithstanding the coup, we're going to continue the aid for the time being. But, Rob, I, but uh, I wanted to make one other little correction because there have been a couple of couple of references to things like this in the area and likening it to Turkey. Turkey's really, really, really different. Turkey's president has been in place for 12 years. He's increasingly shown some 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 Islamic fundamentalist tendencies, but this is they have a long history of of a democratic government backed up by a strong military. So I just I just want to make sure that we that we don't get carried away with with, with, with comparing them. Right. They're very very different. Ralph, when he, what was odd in in this whole situation is when prior to Morrissey's uh, departure. Right. From the presidency, uh, Egypt was experiencing ruling blackouts, fuel shortages, food shortages. It was it was almost as if somebody had set in Egypt back decades. Uh, Morsi comes out of the executive office. Now all of a sudden, Egypt has been observed by many journalists over there, including CNN, saying that life has almost gotten back to normal, almost as if Anwar Sadat were president again. It's become normal day to day life. Was is this a situation of there's just more confidence by the people, or was the military in fact holding back, or was there some sort of internal struggle holding back power, food, and, and resources? Well, well uh, certainly I think the the military was watching closely how, how the Muslim Brotherhood would govern, and if they felt the Muslim govern uh, Muslim Brotherhood was going to um, overreach, the military thought that it was appropriate for them to step in. Um, notwithstanding the fact that economic conditions, um, people were just generally afraid that Morsi was moving the country towards becoming a radical Islamic fundamentalist state. When he claimed that his decrees were not subject to any kind of judicial review, that got a lot of secularists, younger people, very, very upset and concerned. And that's why um, you look at some of the other countries in the region, there's that, that deep concern, especially Turkey, which is very Western. They don't want the government moving the country away from a secularist system. They want to keep the, the tradition and the democracy uh, going. Right. Congressman Al, this puts Congress in a very awkward position. You've got uh, a country who's been largely seen as one of our close allies in the area and one of the staples that's kept a somewhat manner of peace between uh, the Egyptians and, and the Israelis. Uh, at the same time, we are getting pressure from Folks like Rand Paul uh, in in the Senate saying, "Look, enough's enough. We can't keep supporting this." Th does Congress know how to split the baby on this one? Does Congress know how to do anything? <laughs> well, there's that. It's, it's at this point, and as a as a former member of that body and a proud member at that time, I'm so glad I'm not there now. Uh, I don't know whether you. Expect Congress to do anything reasonable uh, in any in, in any kind of speedy way. So I think the Congress is going to be continue to be a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. Well, Denise, let me ask you: Is there a way that Congress can split the baby on this one? No, and the reason I say no is because it's tied to food aid and it's tied to the farm bill. Interesting point. I'm going to bring that one up. Interesting point. Yes, because. The aid that goes to Egypt is not only military aid, being uh, you know ammunition and guns and planes and, and whatever else we want to send them that's technological, but we also send them grain and we send them um, other 
products that are grown in, in the Midwest. Well, that became an issue, um, and that was an amendment that came up uh, during the Farm Bill debate where they said the administration wanted to write a check instead of giving grain. Midwest farmers fought back and said, no, you're shipping grain, not checks. So if they do decide to make a change, what does that change look like? Does it say, okay, we will take the program as is, but for Egypt, but you can still do it? Or will somebody try to get a little cute, like what's happened in the farm mill, and try to add something in that completely tanks it? But, Ralph, what, what do the Egyptian people need? Do they need financial support, or do they, in fact, need grain and planes and ammo? Uh, they're going to need, they're gonna need uh, all of that. The key is for them to set up this interim government uh, with leaders like Alvarade, the former Egyptian ambassador to the U.S., and other top, uh, top leaders to get the but country doesn't that, moving. Doesn't that right. make it look like the Egyptians are kowtowing to the West, which is not going to make a lot of people in Egypt very happy? Well, I think the Muslim Brotherhood overplayed their card. Uh, so How right, so? Um, when Morsi came out and basically said his decrees were not subject to any kind of review. That got people very, very afraid that he was going to basically declare martial law and become a dictator. Could so the key in the next election will be for the opposition to unite behind one candidate. Is there enough of a moderate sector in Egypt that would allow a moderate government to be placed in, to take in and embrace the entire population of Egypt? I, I think there's a groundswell just because Morsi failed to deliver on what he promised when he was elected. Very and interesting. remains to be seen. Alan Moore. You know, this is a reminder of our need to be smart and humble about, about democracy and how uh, a dictatorship or authoritarian government becomes a democracy. It's a long, tough, difficult, messy slog uh, first time may not work, second time may not work, third time may not work. We need to show patience and understanding. And, and even, even though there's some who say, you know, why are we giving money to them? It's because, as Carl said, we're, we're right now buying uh, the best piece that money can buy in the region. And, uh, and we need to keep putting that money in. As long as we see some progress towards a, a stable system that we think can be a worthy partner, but boy, it's a mess and it's and it's a difficult one. Bob Hines. It may well be that the best thing that could happen to Egypt and maybe broadly the Middle East is to have the Brotherhood come in, win win an election, and then totally screw it up. And then the public will be able the next election the odds are that they, the, the a lot of folks who voted for the Brotherhood, thinking they were the people, that will go to a more professional set. You know, some of the some of the former ambassadors and, and and public officials who were not over on the on the Brotherhood side, but were more internationally focused, and they may be able to put together and run a government that will build on what has to be a strong government in the largest Arab country in the Middle East, the one that is the focus of so much. It has to be strong, and it, it may very well be that the, that the fact that the Brotherhood won the first election and totally screwed it up may be one of, the, one of those interesting similes that develops that means that having screwed it up so badly, they make, make it easier for the, the non-Motherhood, Brotherhood-type folks 
to coalesce together and form a government that can actually work and make it happen. But you're talking about a coalition government, but Ralph, my question goes to you is, with, with the sensitivities that are going on right now, with them proposing a former ambassador to the United right. States who is largely known as a key and staunch supporter of U.S. government policy right. in the region, uh, can Egypt sustain a coalition government? and make it sustainable there? Well, I think that's a million-dollar question. I mean, you, if you have over 22 million people that have no confidence in Morsi, I mean, that says a lot for the chances of, of the opposition uh, winning in the next election. But the key is to move quickly to set, up an, uh, to set up these elections. In this interim government, they are not making any outreach to the Muslim Brotherhood. And the head of the Muslim Brotherhood has said, even if they did offer us, uh, a seat in this government, we would refuse. So they're already saying that there's right. no option for a coalition government right. that would include the Muslim Brotherhood. That's correct. Um, how important to the region and global affairs is finding a stabilization in the Egyptian government? It's it's very crucial. Um, you know, we talked about the Israel uh, Egyptian peace treaty. We've talked about their their economic uh, issues and. Uh, basically a peace and security in the region. You don't want the situation in Egypt to fester out of control. So they have got to move quickly to uh, having elections and installing a stable government as soon as possible. Denise? I'm going to go back to the Suez Canal. I was in the administration when the, uh, the turbulence began in Egypt, and the phone calls we started to get were from shipping companies saying, can we still get our containers through the Suez Canal? And that, that's what the private sector is going to be very concerned about is, given the upheaval, who controls the canal right now? And not only who controls it, but what rules are they putting in place? And will those rules continue, or will they be in a day-by-day -day based on who is guarding the port? Right. Ralph, when do we see elections, possibly? Uh, in the next uh, couple of months, if everything goes smoothly. And, and the point that Denise reference, reference is key. Um, they're going to have a lot of private interests that are going to be pushing for uh, commerce and trade. You said it was important that it happened soon. Is that soon enough? Um, I'd like to see it sooner, but uh, given all the, t the turbulence that's going on, I, I think they're going to need a, a couple of months. Are they going to have to sell Alliday as president? Um, I don't think they're going to have to sell him, but they're going to have to coalesce around one person, whether it's Alliday or someone else. They better do this fast. Interesting. Well, Ralph, thank you very much for joining us on this. Uh, very, on very, always, always good to have you. Uh, now we're coming up to our favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, rumors, buzz going around the Beltway, outside the Beltway. Uh, we're going to start off real quick. Uh, CNN and Politico uh, just announced breaking news. Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney, has announced that she will go head-to-head -head with Senator Mike Enzi in a Republican primary for the Senate seat in Wyoming. Interesting play there. That news is breaking now. But I'm going to start off around the table. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Uh, I will uh, later. <laughs> Bob Hines, tell me a story. I didn't realize we had pass. Bob Hines. The administration will discover that they did not have a coup in Egypt. They had an adjustment <laughs> they will do it. They will do it for a very simple reason: that it is the smartest thing they can possibly do to help the Egyptians stabilize. Political market correction? Absolutely. Oh, but this is exactly what will happen because it's an American's interest that Egypt be a 
structured government that works, that the people are happy with it, that's the, so canal, Congress, the canal stays open. So Congress is basically going to call a political false start. No, they're, they're, what they're going to do is the, the administration will send something up to them that will say, you know, a duck is a duck. Okay. And a coup is not there. There we go. There we go. Good story. Denise Krebs, tell me a story. John Sosko. John Sosko is a name that most of you do not know, but he will be somebody that you will get to know over the next 12 months. John Sosko used to work for Sam Nunn. He is currently the special IG for Afghanistan Reconstruction. He has been issuing some very interesting reports recently talking about the Department of Defense and AIB, making several allegations regarding fraud, waste, and abuse. One of my favorite um, episodes of John Sosko was at your center, the Simpson Center, back in January, where he literally said USAID is building buildings but they're not really sure where those buildings are because they aren't controlling their contractors. Interesting. So if we're looking at a lot of money and we're looking at the fact that we don't have money, then people are going to want to know where all the money is that has been spent and how do we ensure that the money that we are going to spend is being spent properly. So get to know them. Good guy. Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Man, this is a target-rich uh, affair. Do I... Do I Tell everybody that that uh, Governor Bob uh, McDonald's uh, political future is completely dead, which it is. No, I'm not going to go there. Do I say that the uh, that the D.C. City Council uh, acts idiotically still again by by like, driving driving uh, Walmart out of uh, uh, some of the sites that it intended to build in? Um, Unless the governor vetoes a, the mayor. a minimum, excuse me, the mayor vetoes a minimum wage bill. No, I'm not going there. I want to talk about the Defense of Marriage Act, which the court uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, ruled uh, unconstitutional, uh, which I totally agree with. What I wish was that DOMA had never been passed in the first place, or that the Congress had had changed it, and now a a disaster, a slow-moving disaster is is coming to fore because what DOMA does, and I don't have a quarrel with the court here, I have a quarrel with the underlying law in the Congress, says that that for the purposes of federal benefits of individuals getting getting benefits for for uh, gay spouses, same-sex spouses, it depends on the state. So. Imagine a situation right here in Washington, D.C., where somebody gets married in, in the District of Columbia legally. They work for the federal government, um, and they want spousal benefits for health insurance, but they, but they live over in Virginia, where the marriage is not recognized. Do they get the federal employee health insurance or not? I think they don't. Um, how about Social Security benefits for spouses and widows? I think they don't unless they live in a state with, with, uh, where same-sex marriage is, is recognized, regardless of the legality of the marriage in the first place. There's a whole host of problems that are just sort of like a real creeping BI. up out here. Real BI. Keep your eyes peeled, and it's going to take congressional action, which is going to be a huge challenge. Good luck with that. Good story. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Well, it's not a story. I'm just going to suggest that. Um, I don't know who in, in the Senate has it out for uh, for the uh, Perez, the nominee for the Secretary of Labor. He served as a uh, county councilman in Montgomery County. <clears throat> he had some other appointed positions. <laughs> he had some other appointed positions in in Montgomery County. He's well liked by by people. Um, who? 
uh, Perez. Um, and I just, you know, we'll see what happens. Wow, that's that's a good story. That is a good story. Congressman Al, tell me a story. The Tea Party is on its way out. It's going to take a long, long time. I think they will still be effective in the next election. I am not sure that they will be effective in the next presidential election. At some point, the Republican Party is going to figure out a way to separate themselves from these people who have attached themselves to the traditional GOP. And when they do, uh, then we'll get back to normal in terms of of the Democrats and the Republicans, and the Tea Party uh, will go away. Not all of the right wing, but the, uh, the this, 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 this group of know-nothings who uh, are causing so much trouble and destroying Boehner's speakership uh, will take a long, slow slide to... Uh, Nowhere. I've got I've got a quick actually I got a uh, quick story. We already talked about Liz Cheney. Uh, new story. Last uh, within the past week, uh, Secretary Janet Napolitano announced her departure from the administration. She is going to take over as the head of the California Board of Regents and the University System out of California, which led to all kinds of speculation. Talking to sources inside the administration at DHS, several names have been brought out. Some of them have already pulled out. Susan Collins was the name that was thrown around. She is out. Uh, they talked, or apparently are talking about possibly Thad Allen, former Commandant of the Coast Guard. He apparently is marginally still in, but a very dark horse. The money bet right now is on New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly to come back to the administration as the possible Secretary of Homeland Security. He's got great credibility with law enforcement, great credibility with in the uh, public safety sector. He's an old school guy, uh, former commissioner of customs, knows the agencies involved. Mark my word, I'm saying right now, I believe that Ray Kelly, short of him deciding he never wants to leave the best job in law enforcement as the PC in New York, Ray Kelly is the front runner for Secretary of Homeland Security. Bob, you have one more? I had one thought. I listened to my dear friend Al talk about the demise of the Tea Party. I am so happy that uh, he thinks it's possible, because as a Republican, I would love to see the Tea Party go the way. Of no, you're a moderate Republican. You're I a sensible indeed. Republican. I am indeed, and I and like I, many of us around the table. And I, and I find the Tea Party people to be enthusiastic, energetic. And wrong. By the way, if one more Tea Party person calls me a rhino, I'm going to shove a horn in places that it shouldn't be. I'm and tired of hearing that. That's an excellent idea. I am tired of hearing. I'm tired of being called a rhino. Yeah. You guys just don't like what I say. Alan Moore? Um, we haven't talked about immigration at all. There's a lot of speculation now that immigration is dead. Um, it's, uh, it's on life support. In it will my, be taken up in to my next humble year. opinion, uh, I think that that uh, there are Republicans who would like to take up some pieces of it. 
and I don't rule that uh, possibility out. I Do you don't, think I don't think it's will totally allow immigration to come up? Well, yeah, absolutely. That's the only way they'll allow it to come up. They will not do the comprehensive bill. They will not take up the Senate bill. Remember, the Senate bill, for all of its, uh, you know, the excitement and enthusiasm about this comprehensive bill, it got 30% of the Republican vote. And if you are going to the House, and even if it could enjoy the same level of support in the House, and I'm not saying it would, it won't meet the the minimum standard that that uh, that the Speaker feels compelled to abide by. So, having said that, uh, there's two things that they're, they're not confident they're not confident that the border will work, the border controls will work, and and uh, uh, and they insist on that, and they don't like a pathway to citizenship. Now, okay, go ahead. So. We'll see, but I don't think it's dead. That's ten, all. That's really my ten-second answer. Can the Senate save face if the House takes it and puts it piece to be back in the Senate? Sure, sure. They, I mean, they have to confer. They have to con- have a conference regardless. Or okay. No, yeah. Interesting point. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, and Carl Tubin, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back live next week from Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be is right here. Absolutely. We'll see you next week on Blog Talk Radio. Join us 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the greatest political show you've never heard of. Have a great week, everybody.